Hello, everyone, and welcome to the United City Greensboro podcast, a church in the heart of Greensboro with a desire to practice the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. You can learn more about our community at unitedcitygso.com. Enjoy today's teaching. Good morning, everyone. Uh, if I had not a chance to meet you yet, my name is Jay, and I am the pastor for Discipleship and Formation here at United City. Um, this morning, we're going to dive back into our human series. Um, we started last week with understanding or asking the question, what does it mean to be human? Uh, one of the questions that's asked as we go through this series is, what does being human have to do with the Lenten season? Well, it has everything to do with the Uh, Lenten season. Part of that is because Jesus himself comes incarnationally and dwells among us. And so he reflects to us what it means to be fully human and fully alive. And so in the period leading up to his death, burial, and resurrection, we are exploring the ideas of what it really means to be human as Jesus reflects to us. So this morning, we're going to dive in heavy into anthropology, sociology, and everything I am not credited to talk about. But I'm going to do my very best. So please be patient with me. Another thing, I want to confess that I'm a nerd, okay? I love video games, I love Star Wars, and I love a good sci-fi novel. So for those of you who are not interested in those things, please bear with me. I'm going to go ahead and apologize for that. But today, we are talking about freedom and desire. And how does freedom and desire play into what it means to be human? I want to start this morning by introducing to you or reintroducing you to some literary history. And I want to start our time together reviewing a novel known as 1984. Do we have any, anybody that has read 1984? Yes, classic. For those of you who have had a resolution to read more this year, please make sure you put this on your list. So what does 1984 have to do with what we're talking about in regards to freedom and desire? Well, just in summation, the classic novel, 1984, by George Orwell was published in June of 1949. Following the cosmic shifts in the geopolitical landscape of that time, Orwell's work thematically centers on the consequences of totalitarianism, mass surveillance, and repressive regimentation of people and behaviors within society. Orwell modeled the totalitarian government in the novel after Stalinist Russia and Nazi Germany. More broadly, the novel examines the role of truth and facts within politics, which has been quite interesting over this last few years um, in his prophecy of that. Um, And the the story takes place in an imagined future, the year 1984, when much of the world has fallen victim to perpetual war. Omnipresent government surveillance. Oh, I lost my notes. I'm so sorry, y'all. Omnipresent um, government surveillance historical negationism, and propaganda. Great Britain, known as Airstrip One, has become a province of totalitarian superstate Oceania, ruled by the party, who employ the thought police to persecute individuality and independent thinking. 
Big Brother, which we have heard a lot about, um, the dictatorial leader of Oceana employ, enjoys an intense cult of personality manufactured by the party's excessive brainwashing techniques. And the protagonist, Winston Smith, is a diligent and skillful rank-and-file worker and the, an outer party member who secretly hates the party and dreams of rebellion. He enters into a forbidden relationship with his colleague Julia and starts to remember what life was like before the party came to power. 1984 has become a classic literary example of political and dystopian fiction. It has also popularized the worm Orwellian and as an adjective with many terms used in the novel entering common uses, including big brother, double think, thought police, thought crime, newspeak, and two plus two equals five. Parallels have been drawn between the novel's subject matter and real-life instances of totalitarianism, mass surveillance, and violations of freedom and expression, among other themes. Time included the novel on its list of the 100 best English language novels from 20, 1923 to 2005, and it was placed on the Modern Library's 100 best novels list, reaching number 13 on the editor's list and number six on the reader's list. So what does this have to do with what we're talking about this morning? I would propose... A question that 1984 poses is a question, what is freedom and who controls that freedom? What does it mean to be free? And based upon how we define freedom, what are we willing to sacrifice in order to be free? There are classical understandings of freedom, and in the midst of the understandings of freedom is a need for us to understand, as followers of Jesus made in the image of God, what true freedom is. So, a disclaimer. We need to define terms this morning. I want to first start by understanding what freedom is not. Freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want to do. I would argue the ability to act without recourse is actually more a question of power, something that is quite a debate in regards to socio-political understandings in our culture today. Freedom is actually exercised in its full potential under limitation. And we understand this because society is built on a set of laws. Those laws of nature or laws of man. And we institute laws as means to maximize our freedoms because they are generally designed to protect us from danger, harm, or trauma. The question that arises is, how can I participate in society freely? This is the classical understanding. Freedom primarily defaults to a political definition for most of us when we talk about freedom. However, we need to understand what freedom is actually meant to be in regards to how God designed it and how, what scripture tells us about freedom. Again, political freedom is the ability to participate in society freely without coercion, harm, or imprisonment. But what we learn from scripture is freedom is much bigger than that, and it has greater implications eternally. So what is freedom in scripture? Adam and Eve were given freedom in the garden. The proto-humans were granted the ability to exercise freedom as God designed it. And he tells them, you're allowed to eat from any tree except the tree of knowledge. They are giving a, given a moral choice. They are given an option. They can choose life. They can choose the responsibilities that have been given to them. Or they can choose one that was built outside of it. The question that always arises and comes up when it comes to this, why did God put the tree in the garden then? Why would he give him the option? The reason is, is because love is connected to freedom. He cannot truly love us unless he allows us to have the freedom to love him and to obey him. 
In Genesis 2, 15 through 17, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. There is a moral obligation that Adam has. There is a choice and a freedom that he has in order to be obedient and exercise what it means to actually be in relationship with God and to love God. Freedom is an element to the order and the love which God gives, but it is within the bounds of obedience that we are called to understand freedom. Again, I hearken back to the idea, freedom is not doing whatever you want to do. Freedom is fully exercised, as St. Augustine would say, based upon how we operate within the defined terms that God has given us as human beings. So we have, uh, in Scripture, we have, two we have two, a dichotomy between internal freedom and external freedom. And in the Old Testament, we talk a lot about external freedom. These two facets within the scriptures, just as we find in society, which is external freedom and internal freedom, and in the Old Testament, freedom is commonly used in reference to external freedom or captivity, particularly slavery. Israel, after being held in captivity in Egypt, set up provisions in which slaves were to be freed and even set up for a new life. This can be found in Deuteronomy 15.12 during the Sabbath year. However, they held a precarious freedom as Israel due to their lack of obedience. If you look through scriptures, you see where um, Israel has disobeyed God, fallen away from God, fallen away from his, um, his rules, his guidance. And because of that, conquering nations such as the Assyrians and the Babylonians come in and they are taken out into captivity. But later in Judaism, we are introduced to political extremes. We have the Maccabeans and the Zealots, for example, Simon, who became Peter, was a zealot. He was a, a political figure who saw that the Gentile conquerors needed to be thrusted out and that the Messiah would come and through political means would restore Israel. However, we see that that is not necessarily the case. The coming Messiah was viewed as one who would overthrow Gentile conquerors. We commonly view freedom from a positivity that is found in external freedom. And this is even seen in Isaiah 61.1. The spirit of the Lord is of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. Jesus would use this verse in his inaugural sermon. Yet Jesus points to a greater freedom that is actually found internally. It is not just external. We see this example also in Ezekiel 36, 26 through 30 in regards to external freedom, where it says, Moreover, I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances, and you will live in the land that I give, gave your forefathers. And I will call for the grain and multiply it, and I will not bring famine on you. And I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field." Yet what we find is that an internal freedom is necessary for flourishing externally in our freedom. In, uh, in Chronicles 7.14, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. 
The dominant view of freedom in the New Testament is not one of external or political freedom, but rather internal freedom. The problem being that even if you are externally free, it is possible to be in bondage internally. We see this in the Exodus story. Um, The Israelites are in Egypt. They are taking physically out of Egypt, and they wandered the desert for 40 years. Why did they wander the desert in 40 years? Because God had to free them from an internal imprisonment and bondage to Egypt. They still believed that they were slaves, even though they were physically free. And in the same way, God has to do a work in us to free us from the external lies of bondage and move us to a place of internal freedom that is found only through Christ. Jesus speaks into a deeper freedom which will transcend all earthly politicized freedoms. An element of of freedom that hinges on is truth. We can only be free as far as knowing what we believe and what truths we follow. Jesus states in John 8, 31 through 32, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold my teaching you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Freedom is found through the example of living that Jesus gives us. It is not merely just an ethereal idea. It is through practice. Understanding that we have exchanged the truth for a lie. He is the truth in opposition to the lie. There are many beliefs in this room. There are many ways that we have been conditioned to believe one way or another way based upon trauma, experience, and whatnot. And it hides deep within us. And the Lord speaks into that deepness in order to pull it out and to uh, renew within us an idea and a sense of an internal freedom that frees us from those lies. Dr. Art Lindsley who is a part of an organization called Theology and Work, states, it is the truth that will make us free. We are, in our natural sinful state, captive to lies. We don't see reality as it is. We deny that we know deep down, uh, what, deep down what is true, exchanging the truth of God for a lie. We live in a state of unreality. If truth is that which corresponds to reality, then throwing off lies and deception frees us to see reality for what it is. We see our own slavery to sin and can receive forgiveness and new power to live in accordance with reality. We can be what we were created to be. Truth leads to freedom. This is one of the questions that I have to ask you this morning is, what are the things that you believe about yourself and about the Lord? What truth are you operating in? Have you asked yourself the tough questions of what is it that you believe deep down inside of yourself? And understanding that true freedom does not work without obedience. So, we have to understand that our ability to obey and our choice to obey hinges much on understanding what we desire. And so I want to transition now in understanding what is desire and how does desire play into that. Contrary to belief in Christianity, desire is actually a good thing. It's not a bad thing. We all have desires. The function to desire is one that is God-breathed and God-ordained. What we desire and why we, we desire is the thing that is of internal, eternal importance. Desire is heavily connected to our understanding 
to meaning. Humans are meaning-making machines. We have to understand what is our purpose. We have to understand why we do what we do. And the question that we have to answer for ourselves is understanding what those desires are and why we desire what we desire. What is the end goal? Again, as I said, humans are meaning-making machines. And thus, what we believe about our purpose and our existence will fill the equation of our desires. As opposed to the teachings of Hinduism or Buddhism, which point to a state of being that is free from desire, even the desires of being holy are good because they still come from the self. Desire is good. Again, I want you to understand that desire is good. But again, our freedom is dependent on what truth we believe about what we should choose and how those truths shape our desires will affect our choices. The transformative power of the Holy Spirit and the pursuit of holiness replaces appetites of one belief for the appetites of the truth, namely Jesus. We are a people who are in pursuit of holiness. In many ways, there's a lot of questions, misunderstanding. What does it mean to be holy? Does it mean to be perfect? No, that's not what it means. It means to seek and be transformed by Christ that we are to be set apart, that our thinking is set apart. As Paul says and uses the word metanoia, which is repentance, which means we change our thinking. We change our perception about what life is, what the Lord has given us, and how we pursue our life to the fullest. There has long been a hedonistic engagement in Western culture that draws from a platonic view, a dualism that states we are soul and body. The body is asserted as a vehicle for pleasure, and the soul is a vehicle for spiritual expression. Yet we are seeing that these two are not separate, but rather one, which are stitched together. What one does with the body will affect the soul, and what one believes about themselves will affect the body. The ramifications of unchecked desire lead us towards destruction, apathy, and ignorance. We have to understand what we desire and why we desire it. The myth of progress in Western modernity has proven that more is not better. Choice is not the epitome of existence. Rather, what we choose is of greater importance. James K. Smith In his book, You Are What You Love, The Spiritual Power of Habit, a book I definitely, definitely suggest that you pick up. He says, Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect, but forms our very loves. He isn't content to simply deposit new ideas into our mind. He is after nothing less than your wants, your loves, and your longings. Soren Kierkegaard, the... German philosopher said that um, you are what you think. But the reality is that as human beings, we are not thinkers. The reality as human beings, we are lovers. We choose love. We are designed to love. And our loves shape our longings. So I want to transition back into some literary history. We talked about 1984. We talked about this novel where George Orwell uh, explains this prophecy of what the world was heading to after World War II in regards to the effects of Nazi Germany and Stalinist Russia. How many of you have ever heard of the book Brave New World? Yes. Another fantastic one you need to add to your list this year. 
Brave New World actually came out previously, before. It was published in 1932. It is a dystopian social science fiction novel by, by English author Aldous Huxley. What a name, Aldous Huxley. Largely set in a futuristic world state whose citizens are environmentally engineered into an intelligence-based social hierarchy, the novel anticipates huge scientific advancements in reproductive technology, sleep learning, psychological manipulation, and classical conditionings that are combined to make a dystopian society which is challenged by only a single individual, the story's protagonist. The novel is often compared to 1984. The world state, built upon the principles, this is funny, built upon the principles of Henry Ford, his assembly line, which is mass production, homogeneity, predictability, and consumption of disposable consumer goods. While the world state lacks any supernatural-based religion, Ford himself is revered, re revered as a creator of their society, but not as a deity, and characters celebrate Ford Day and swear oath by his name, by Ford. In this sense, some fragments of traditional religion are present, such as Christian crosses, which had their tops cut, cut off to be changed to a T, representing the Ford Model T. In England, there is an arch community songster of Canterbury, obviously continuing the Archbishop of Canterbury. And in America, the Christian Science Monitor continues publication as the Fortean Science Monitor. The World State Calendar numbers years in the AF era, Anno Ford, or after Ford, with the calendar beginning in AD 1908, the year in which Ford's Model T rolled off the assembly line. The novel's Gregorian calendar year is actually 2540, but it is referred to in the book as AF 632. From birth, members of every class are indoctrinated by recorded voices repeating slogans while they sleep to believe their own class is superior, but that the other classes perform needed function. Any residual unhappiness is resolved by an antidepressant and hallucinogenic drug called soma. Pleasure and con consumption are used as a means of ordering society. What is great is, again, they compare a lot of social sciences and cultural commentators compare these two works, 1984 and Brave New World. And they ask the question, which one are we actually living in closest to? Neil Postman writes in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, Public Discourse in the Age of Show Business. And Neil Postman was a media critic, theorist, worked at Columbia University. He wrote this in 1985. And if you read through this, the prophetic warnings that he places in this book are chilling. He says, contrary to common belief among the educated, Huxley and Orwell did not prophesy the same thing. Orwell warns that we will be overcome by an externally imposed oppression. But in Huxley's vision, no big brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As he saw it, people will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. What Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley, Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared he would, we would become captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture, preoccupied with some equivalent of the feelies, the orgy-porgy, and the centrifugal bumble puppy. You have to read the book to understand those terms. 
As Huxley remarked in Brave New World Revisited, the civil libertarians and rationalists who are ever on the alert to oppose tyranny fail to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. In 1984, Orwell added, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, they are controlled by inflicting pleasure. In short, Orwell feared that what we fear will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we desire will ruin us. In summation, and as we <clears throat> begin to conclude, <clears throat> I agree with Postman. I believe Huxley has predicted closer to what we see today. We are a people who are distracted or coping. Via the perception of flourishing that Western modernity has given us, we choose to indulge the world or indulge our own desires as a means of meaning and identity. Freedom and desire are both connected but both are held by what we choose to believe as true about ourselves, the world, and most importantly, ultimately, who God is. Jesus' proclamation as the truth and the light is not a conceptual statement. It has implications that push us to recognize his way as a means of properly ordered desire and right belief. There are limits, but those limits are life-giving, and that's why we practice them. We live in a world that believes that if we live under unchecked desires, if we indulge our desires, regardless of, of whether we evaluate where they came from, how they formed, that is what leads to freedom. But what we are learning and what we have learned is that when we do that, we become a slave to our desires without even knowing who we're giving the key over to. In Galatians 5.13, Paul writes, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. We have to understand that in our, in our moments of being hungry, tired, alone, exhausted, feeling the weight of the world, there is an element where just as we read in scripture today that the enemy will step in and distract us from the truth that has been given to us. We have to evaluate and understand what are the things that are important? What are the things that God has said about me? And what truth am I living in? God gives us good gifts. He gives us food. He gives us drink. He gives us friends. He gives us family. But none of those things compare to the reality of that those things are supposed to roll up into worship for him and to him. We worship the creator and not creation. Creation is a means of worship. It's a means of reflecting the reality of who God is and what he has said about us and what he wants for us. And in some cases, true freedom comes from us saying no. No to ourselves and yes to what the Lord has for us. We are going through the Lenten season where we are fasting, we are praying. We have, an identity, we have a rhythm here at United City, rhythms of life. There are means and ways that we practice, that we are not overcome by our desires, that we do not live in a sense of freedom that is unchecked, but rather that we reevaluate and remember what our, what our, where our appetites are leading us and how brokenness and the sin of the world can lead us astray. It is difficult. It's not easy. Whoever may or whatever perception of, of Christianity you may have that this is easy, it's not. It's not easy. 
but it's worth it. There is a reward. Alan Noble, in his book, You Are Not Your Own, Belonging to God in an Inhuman World, he says, Belonging to God sets limits on our lives. Sometimes they are hard limits to bear. It is not easy to stand before God, even with grace. Moment by moment, we must set aside our sinful desires, even the ones closest to our heart, to live sacrificially. I do not want to lie to you. This is a difficult life. Life is difficult. It's difficult. It is easy for us to scroll through Instagram, to scroll through social media, to watch HGTV, to watch the love stories, and to think that this is what what life is supposed to look like. It's not. I don't know if you already know that, but it's not. It's difficult. It's hard. As we stated before, Jesus did not just create an evacuation plan. Spencer mentioned this last week. Christianity is not about saying you're sorry and Jesus saying, okay, get on the ship, we're going to heaven. That's not it. It is transformative. It is about renewing ourselves. And in so as we renew ourselves, we become a renewing agent in the world. He has cultivated, exemplified, and executed what it means to be human and fully alive and how to operate wholly within that freedom. Desire comes naturally, scientifically. Desire comes from a reward system. We all have biologically built into us a reward system. We get cues. The cues let us know that um, there is a reward at the end, and we fight for for the reward in order to fulfill the desire. Jesus fought for a reward. There are some very... I would say misunderstood understandings of what does it mean to be altruistic or what it means to be a Christian in the sense of we should just be, we should love people because you're just supposed to love people and we should love Jesus because Jesus loved us. But there is a reward to being in our faith. There is an aim. There is a place we're going. Paul writes that we run a race. There is a reward at the end. In Hebrews 12.2, it says this. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus didn't go to the cross because he just wanted to go to the cross. Jesus went to the cross because there was a reward on the other side of suffering. He looked at the cross and he said, I despise the cross. I despise shame, and I despise shame and what it has done to my people. And I'm willing to go through the suffering of this because I know that there is a greater joy beyond it. In the same way, he reflects that truth and reality to us. There are things and things that we are wrestling with in this room today. There are things that we know are going to be very difficult to navigate. But I'm here to encourage you that there is something better on the other side of it. We have to push forward. We have to understand that our eyes are fixated on Jesus. As followers of Christ, he is the reward. The rest is just extra. I want to invite the band to come back up as we begin to close out here. And I want to ask the question to you this morning. When you think about your desires, when you think about freedom, what is the reward that you're chasing after? 
What is it going to bring you? Is it going to bring you life? Is it going to bring you healing? Is it going to allow you to be the human that you've been called to be? That Jesus proclaimed over us. There are probably some in this room who have no idea what that is. And I want to encourage you to talk to a pastor this morning, to talk to someone who may have brought you this morning, and ask, what is, it, what is, what is he saying? What does that mean to be fully human and fully alive? Mm-hmm.